You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at agonet slash talks. Good evening and welcome. My name is Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult programs here at the Art Gallery of Ontario. I feel as if with how quickly this evening talk sold out that I really don't need to introduce Lucy Lippard because I think you all know exactly who she is and it's a wonderful thing this evening to welcome you here Lucy. Thank you so much for coming. So her talk tonight is called Something Old, Something New, Ava Hesse, 40 Years Later. Uh, the talk is in association with the exhibition Act Work Hesse Goodwin Martin and is supported very generously by the Terra Foundation for American Art. And it's the first time we've had funding for the, from them, and so we're absolutely delighted. Um, education programs are also supported by smart women, and contemporary programs in particular are supported by Amex. So, Lucy R. Lippard, Lippard is a writer, activist, and curator, and early champion of feminist art. Yay. A friend of Eva Hesse's, Lippard wrote a monograph on the, of the artist in 1976 that remains an essential text. Lippard, Lippard is the author of more than 20 books on contemporary art and culture, including The Lure of the Local, Senses of Place in a Multicultural Society, which I haven't read but must, 1997, and On the Beaten Track, Tourism, Art and Place, 1999. Her anthology of texts documenting the early years of conceptual art, six years, the Dematerialization of the Art Object, was published in 1973 and is required reading for any student of contemporary art. Lucy's most recent book, published in June 2010, is Down Country, the Tano of Galisteo Basin, 1250-1782, by the Museum of New Mexico Press. And this is the favorite, my favorite part of her bio. She lives in Galisteo, New Mexico, population 265, where she started and edits the free monthly community newspaper. <laughs> Lucy Lippard. Is, is this some, um, you know, I think that's backwards, but we'll look. <laughs> let that go. It's my fault rather than anybody else's. Uh, Andreas, is this, is this in focus? Just Okay, great. Just a lousy slide. So I have to admit that I haven't thought seriously about Ava Hesse's work for a long time since my own trajectory has long since led me out of the art world and into the Western landscape, far from Lower Manhattan, the Lower Manhattan of my own and Eva's youth. When people ask me for information about Hesse, I say everything I know is in the book that I wrote on her, and that's really still true. So this talk became kind of an after-the-fact memoir. It's been a joy to reacquaint myself with the work that's meant so much to me. So forgive me an element of sentimentality that probably pervades this talk. I've never seen sentiment as something to be avoided anyway. Uh, the one on the left is a self-portrait of hers from 1961, and the one on the right is a drawing from 1961, which she gave me for my birthday. She gave me another drawing, and I said, I don't want that one, I want this one. <laughs> I got it, amazingly enough. Okay. Uh, the one on the uh, left is a Cretion from 1968, and the one on the right is the uh, Bowery studio that she worked in with the last piece in it. I began the book soon after Hesse died at the end of May 1970. We uh, worked with Saul LeWitt and her estate because we were all convinced that she, if we didn't get something out quick to preserve her legacy, she'd be forgotten. The book also served me as a personal closure to the loss of a dear friend. It wasn't published until 1976. We had a terrible time convincing the NYU press that a young woman artist with basically five years of mature work, to her credit, deserved a book even though the estate paid for it. In 1972, her memory was kept alive by a show at the Guggenheim curated by Linda Shearer. By 1976, not only had I become a feminist, which gave me a whole new angle from which to view Hesse's work, but I was struggling with how to write about someone I'd known so well without betraying confidences. I wasn't sure how to concentrate on Eva's art without denying her life and without letting the life overwhelm the art, a real danger. Eva, of course, did not kill herself. 
she died of a brain cancer that wasn't recognized and caught in time. But she was beautiful and young and dead. And we had the example of Sylvia Plath and Diane Arbus's cautionary tales on what happened to real women once they got mythologized. The one on the left is called Ring Around a Rosie, and the one on the right is An Ear in a Pond, and they're both from 1965, a year she spent in Germany. Eva and I met in the early 60s when we were both living with artists in loft studios on the Bowery amid the bums in the SRO hotels. Eva with sculptor Tom Doyle, me with painter Robert Ryman. I wrote on Doyle before Eva's work matured. We remained friends through the less than a decade she had left to live. Our Bowery neighborhood community was close, its heart being Saul LeWitt, Eva's best friend, who was older and wiser than the rest of us, and he served as a modest but significant mentor. His letter to Eva during the year she and Tom spent in Germany when she was dealing with a disintegrating marriage and a burgeoning art is a classic that I've been told has become a Bible for many young artists. He said, try and tickle something inside of you, your weird humor. You belong in the most secret part of you. Don't worry about cool, make your own uncool. Say fuck you to the world once in a while. He affirmed her sexy, machine-like drawings, which she called nonsense. That sounds wonderful, he responded. Real nonsense. Do more. Donald Droll, who directed the Fishback Gallery at the time, was another deeply supportive friend. It was Donald who suggested that I curate a show at Fishback in October 66. At the time, writers, especially neophytes like me, never curated exhibitions. Both Donald and I envisioned the show as centered on Hesse's work, as well as that of Frank Lincoln Viner, another member of the Bowery community who lived upstairs from me, a straight man who worked in fabric and did his own sewing. That's his work on the left. And this is uh, Eva's metronomic irregularity, which uh, was in the eccentric abstraction show. We mulled over, Donald and I mulled over this almost imperceptible trend, which was later called post-minimalism, a term I've always disliked. I called the show eccentric abstraction. The exhibition has often been confused with eccentric abstraction, the article published in Art International in November the same year, which included many more artists, and even some of the more scholarly publications have put all those artists in this exhibition. Both stemmed from an obscure need to soften and broaden the minimalist concepts with which I was involved at the time. I was looking for art that challenged the norms of beauty and order. Once the shock subsided, even pop art was slick. And minimalism, Judd, Morris, Andre, LeWitt, et al., for all its rejection of artiness was very elegant. Even Morris's felt wall pieces and Andre's found metal works. What I was looking for was something that was both abstract and formally simple, but it had rough edges and erotic undertones. The one on the left is by Bruce Nauman from Head to Hand. One on the right is by Jackie Windsor called Solid Lattice. The Nauman's 67 and the Windsor is 1970. In the summer of 66, I traveled for the first time to the West Coast and I was exposed to Northern California funk as well as the Finnish fetish work of Southern California. Don Potts and Bruce Nauman seemed to combine the two in new ways and relate eccentrically to New York minimalism. This is not one of Nauman's abstract pieces, but I didn't seem to have a decent slide of one. Back east, I visited other young artists, among them Keith Sonnier, still a graduate student at Rutgers, and Gary Keane. I missed Jackie Windsor, who was also at Rutgers but hadn't developed her mature work yet. A downtown friend, Weaver Alice Adams, now a well-known public artist, had begun to work with rope and chicken wire in simple but scruffy organic shapes. And these all seemed to make sense with Hesse's obsessive materialization of her anxieties. The idea of an offbeat abstraction was beginning to come together when Arthur Drexler, who was curator of architecture at the Museum of Modern Art, asked if I knew the work of Louise Bourgeois, who was coincidentally the wife of my former graduate school advisor, Robert Goldwater. I'd seen her 1964 stable gallery show of layers, but wasn't L-A-I-R-S, but wasn't familiar with the pieces he'd collected, that Drexler had collected, small turd-like latex sculptures and a loosely hanging piece called Portrait. They were astoundingly ugly and simultaneously appealing. I was struck by this artist from an older generation who'd come up with something so fresh and forceful, even in the context of other youthful work. That's uh, Bourgeois' femme pieux on the left, steak woman, S-T-E-A-K, 
A-K-E, woman, and on the right, Fillette, or little girl. Bourgeois, as you know, died recently at the age of 98. Her work and Hesse's so apparently dissimilar share something beneath the surface, a deep female malaise. For instance, a piece Louise gave me, which was Femme Pieux from 1970, tiny and unpretentious as it is, offers a prime example of the peculiar fusion of pain and pleasure, narrative and sensuous memory, characterizing so much of bourgeois art. A headless, armless, legless, helpless woman as a pincushion, lying on her back like an upended turtle. It's made of wax, the needles are now a bit rusted. Bourgeois associated the long, sharp pins and needles with her mother's work on tapestry and with the pain caused by her father's affair with her governess. The needles are plunged into the belly genital area and death or fetal death might seem imminent. Yet the nourishing breasts are untouched and the stake, the pieux, where the head should be on this Willendorf-like torso, suggests that the woman can fight back, that she's sharp as well as voluptuous, in mind as well as body. Despite its size and its tiny, Fampia is a powerful and even malevolent object. They grow from the center, said Bourgeois, of her sculptures, the more important organs being hidden. The life is inside. And that inside-outside tension is also a major element in some of Hesse's work, which, like Bourgeois' work, implies what Louise called the location of metamorphosis rather than the act. Or I guess I said that, not Louise. <laughs> Accomplished by simultaneously hiding and revealing the interiors. This, uh, the one on the left is, has this total zero, and the one on the right is one more than one. Total zero was her comment on Tom's new girlfriend, who became his longtime wife. <laughs> but she... <laughs> Uh, back to eccentric abstraction, and it was a perfectly nice woman, but Eva had her reasons for not, <laughs> not being happy with that. At uh, Pan American Plastics on Broadway near Canal Street in New York, I found a soft, tan, kind of touchy-feely plastic, two types, one smooth and one nubbly, on which the announcement was printed, accompanied by a brief text in an attempt to sort of parallel the works in the show. I didn't think much of the fact that three of the eight artists in eccentric abstraction were women, although that was a pretty unique gender percentage in those days. All of these artists, men and women, were working in a curious place between biological and minimal abstraction that was later claimed mostly by women. Their almost ugly materials invoked kineticism or body ego, opening up a volcanic layer of suppressed erotic imagery. I realized that while I was fascinated by pop art's iconoclasm and by the blunt spareness, modular repetitions, and permutations of minimalism, I was looking for something else, as I said earlier, something more sensuous, more peculiar, and less neutral. My art historical field had been data on surrealism, but at the time I was totally committed to abstraction, to the all-white paintings of Robert Ryman and the almost all-black paintings of Ed Reinhardt. The structures of Saul LeWitt, who did these pieces. This is his 1967 serial project, number one, two of the permutations that made up the project. It didn't sink in that I was a feminist until four years later on the wings of conceptual art and the politics of the Art Workers Coalition, the anti-Vietnam War movement and so forth. The coalition was also the birthplace of New York's first feminist group in 1969. It was called War, Women Artists in Revolution. And Nancy Spiro was one of the most active members. Her anti-war work combined feminism and politics in another unforeseen way. There's male bomb and female bomb. In 1966, however, the women's liberation movement was just beginning. I hadn't a clue about it. I was neck deep in minimalism, which Clement Greenberg once accused of having rather feminine sensibilities. It, it was not a compliment. The women's movement hit the art world belatedly in 1969-70, but I've always felt that eccentric abstraction marked the unconscious beginning of my feminist consciousness before I even would have adopted the word. Uh, the one on the right is by Linda Benglis from 1971. The one on the left is by Jay DeFeo, her famous rose, which she worked on from 58 to 66. This is one version of this amazing painting. Feminist art is really about <clears throat> content and communication. Lived experience and autobiography, which are not quite the same thing, were at the core of that content, which arrived at the gates of the art world during a period when the formalists were still railing against literary art, 
Feminism gave all artists permission to consider what Sherry Galke called the unleashing of self, or letting it's, it all hang out, as we said then, as a preface to social change. I've retained my admiration for that ultimate and eye-opening truisms, the personal is political. Hessa may never have heard this line, but if she did, she must have recognized how she was making it tangible. This modest phrase was the baseline for cultural, radical, and socialist feminisms with emphases differently placed in each branch. In the hands of feminists and other activists, it remains a living and dynamic proposition, a brilliant way to translate lived experience, positive and negative, into political action and deeply moving art like Eva's. The one on the left is by Lee Lozano from 1963, and the one on the right is uh, from Lee Bonacou, 1962. Uh, no, I'm sorry, not Lee Bonacou. Uh, Yayoi Kusama in the early 60s. Who, get that thing off. <laughs> I'm very intolerant of those. I don't even have one. So. Uh, several women artists whose work can be related to Hesse's had already made their mark on the New York art scene. Lee Lozano's early erotic paintings were totally beyond the pale. They made... She made conceptual art in the late 60s that was as radical as anything around. She's in a couple of these traffic shows that are showing here now. But she wasn't yet famous, and she didn't want to be famous. She got totally out of the art world in 1970. Yayo Kusama's work became feminist icons, although she herself probably didn't think of them that way either. Yoko Ono, who was not yet famous, was part of Fluxus. Uh, there was also uh, Lee Bonacou, who's on the left there, whose canvas-covered reliefs evoked for some the dark holes of female anatomy. And Nancy Graves, who I don't have a slide of, but a Yale Art School graduate like Hesse, whose camels and bones had made a sensation. There was also German-born Ruth Vollmer, I think that's right side up, yeah, who was from an older generation but was a close friend of both Hesse's and Robert Smithson's. That's her piece on the right. It's Tangents from 1964. The Bonacou is from 62. And Vollmer made works that are more conventionally abstract but can be really related to both artists. Oh, sorry, that is entirely my fault. <laughs> you can get it. That's um, Martha Wilson's, one of her famous identity pieces called I Make Up the Image of My Deformity on the left sideways. She was still a student at NISCAD and uh, was beginning her examinations of gender and role playing in the early 70s. So was Adrienne Piper working in similar lines. She'd launched into her own totally original identity works in which she created or recreated or destroyed her own racial image and racial identity and bizarre public activities. I mention these works in relation to Hesse's not because she knew them, but because her identity was also tied up in and made manifest in her art. Abstract as it may have been, it was readable. You couldn't help but know her if you really got into her work. Uh, the one on the right is by Richard Serra. <laughs> it doesn't look right, but anyway. Uh, called, it's untitled, I think it's... No, it's called something with four, oh, crating with four moles from 69. And the one on the left, which I think should probably be sideways, but I went by these red dots that were from the, the OCAD <laughs> thing, so. Uh, it's called Sequel from 1967 to 8 by Hesse. It's latex, and it just, the balls are just kind of sprawled on it. Hesse's art and life, however, were primarily bound to the male artists with whom she showed at the time. The anti-form or process movement was her milieu, for instance, the warehouse show, which included Sarah and Morris and Svelte Things and Andre and so forth, was a major moment. And she was kind of the neatest artist in that show, but also one of the most interesting. Alyssa Author, in her important new book, String Felt Thread, The Hierarchy of Art and Craft in American Art, discusses how softness in art was something of a taboo in the days of high formalism. Klaus Oldenburg notwithstanding, his then wife Patty Musha sewed his early fabric pieces, so his hands were kind of clean of women's work and untainted by association with crafts. In part because of the company she kept, Hesse was never associated with the relatively derogatory category fiber artist, then used for weavers with art world ambitions. 
There was never any question of Hess's work being conflated with quilts and hooked rugs. Author riffs on an exchange between Art Forum, Carl Andre, whose metal rugs were also absolved from craft contagion, and Brenda Miller, whose work you see at the right here. What's that red thing? I guess it's just a, a door or something. <laughs> I don't know what that. Um, and Brenda Miller, whose piece at the right uh, from uh, about 1970 was Hesse influenced, but an original fiber wall piece, wall artist. But she was told that she was a craft artist, whereas Andre was not. These discussions sound kind of quaint today when the gender-identified battle over materials was, I hope, won long ago, primarily by feminists. But vestiges of the high art versus craft hierarchies remain, often reinforced by craftspeople defending their own bailiwicks. And I, I had an interview with Joe, whose last name I don't think I ever got today from uh, the Fiber Art magazine, who told me that, that craftspeople are sort of fighting back now, which is interesting. Years later, writing about Harmony Hammond's work, I made a case for women's sensuous abstraction. Observing that abstraction is admirably suited to sensuous and erotic content because it concentrates on surface and sensation, the rhythms, repetitions, and tactile specificity on which a sensual response thrives. Furthermore, a curious tension can arise between the specific non-objective form and generalized clues to reality. This tension can be transmitted without the distraction of illustrative elements, more easily making contact with the viewer's individual experiences. Uh, the one on the left is an, a Hammond called Louise from 1972. And the one on the right is also by her called The Meeting of Passion and Intellect, which in a funny way is what Eva was doing from, from much later, 1981. Hammond, who made a series of painted fabric floor pieces that resembled hooked rugs, commenting on Andre's non-rugs, also made a series of early works that referred to indigenous women's arts, like the one on the left, especially baskets without appropriating indigenous work. She and others emphasized the stitch or the marks on canvas. Hesse's work has also been compared to fetishistic, so-called primitive objects in their combination of classic form and loose, untrammeled elements. Hammond sees her robust, rag-wrapped sculptures from the late 70s, the one on the left, which is called Swaddles, as particularly influenced by Hesse and their repetitively bound presences with the sort of sexual component, in this case, read or intended to read as queer. Uh, she gave me that slide, and she said that was one that was, she thought was particularly influenced by Eva. The one on the right is by Howardina Pindell uh, from a show I did in 1971 of women's work. And again, this was kind of... With Hammond's work, you can sort of see the protective uh, aspect of the relate to bourgeois femme pieux. And the subversion of the grid, which was a Hesse staple, too, was picked up by people like Howardina Pendel after, in the years after her death. As I said, Eva died just before I became a ranting, raving feminist, and before the New York women's art movement flowered in the fall of 1970. The one on the left is, is her hang-up. Uh, from 66, which is my, I think, my favorite piece of all times of hers. And the one on the right is uh, Expanded Expansion from 1969. I think that had Hesse lived, she might have changed her mind uh, about being a feminist, or I might have been able to change it for her, though she might never have been out on the picket lines. She'd read Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, and it had rung a lot of bells with her. She copied into her diary for December 1964 the following quote. What woman essentially lacks today for doing great things is forgetfulness of herself. But to forget oneself, it is first of all necessary to be firmly assured that now and for the future one has found oneself. And I can see why that quote appealed to her. Uh, the one on the left is Addendum from 67, and the one on the right is Aeneid from 67 also. But when Cindy Nemzer interviewed Eva in 1970, when she was already very sick, she resisted the notion of differences between men's and women's art. This was a monotonously repeated issue raised by male and female non-feminists ever since the beginning of the women's art movement. Hesse's deep need to connect, which manifested itself in so many of her works, was also a need to bridge this gap, to persuade herself not that women had separate and unique gifts to share, but that women could make art as important as men's. This is a pre- and hopefully not post-feminist attitude. I've also 
I've always answered the question that art has no gender the same way. Maybe art has no gender, but artists do. Given the increasing complexities of gender and identity politics in the last few decades, this may seem kind of simplistic, but I've never heard an argument that dissuaded me. I suspect there are not many thinking women or men who would deny, even today, that women's lived experience, political, sexual, biological, is different from men's lived experience. Uh, the one on the left is contingent, and the one on the right is schema, from 67 and 69 and 67. Despite many insecurities and even neuroses stemming from her fraught life, Hesse was convinced that she was a good artist. I think she even hoped to be great, which is the way it's turned out. As she lay dying, she saw her contingent on the cover of Art Forum, which, needless to say, pleased her immensely. But she still took the ultimate risk of losing some of her major works to posterity when she used latex, a material that was so perfect for her needs, though she knew it was impermanent. In the heat of the creative moment, few artists worry about posterity, one hopes. <laughs> Life doesn't last, art doesn't last, she said philosophically, but she had doubts about it as soon as she'd said it. Uh, the one on the left is a drawing from 69 or 67, which is the cover of my book. I love that one. And the one on the right is Constant, also from 67. Hesse left a series of art notebooks that have considerably expanded our understanding of her triumphs and tribulations. Looking at them, it's most intriguing to try to track the paths not taken. I'm sorry I have no specific images of these. I'm caught in the abyss between slides and digital images, which is where the notebook pages are entombed. Anyway, the notebooks are compelling because of what they say about Hesse's finished and unfinished business like the studio works in the exhibition here, which are very much paralleled in the notebooks. In fact, sculptor Mel Bachner, another friend, remarked on how the intuitive, hands-on process of Hesse's work separated her from her male colleagues, many of whom got carried away with industrial fabrication, where she used industrial materials in a very different way. Uh, the one on the left is accession, and the one on the right Huh, I think this is supposed to be, uh, is, is uh, repetition 19. Hesse's spontaneous notebook drawings are as invaluable as a writer's diary. And of course, she also kept a painfully honest personal diary, which led us to her heart rather than to her hands. Less revealing than the diaries, the sketches are direct lines to the process of art making, sometimes tentative, worked out elsewhere, sometimes strong and confident, as though she knew exactly what should be done. This is, yeah. We can, with a certain ease, follow completed works like Accession or Repetition 19 from the sketches into their full presences. But what would have happened if the buckets of Repetition 19 had been partially filled with water, or were in the process of being filled with water, as seems suggested in one sketch where the word flow appears? That's one of the, and this is a bunch of test pieces in a pastry case that she often used. Another possibility is a drawing called Changing Assumptions that takes the bucket form and plays with lines, better be, yes, <laughs> coming out one end through the center and so forth. This in turn brings to mind early sketches for accretion, 1968, that consists of horizontal tubes with long plastic cords hanging out each end. And in another drawing, the bucket is at one end of a seesaw, accompanied by the dictionary definition of fulcrum. What if metronomic irregularity, in the, this is study for it in the middle of, of that, you saw a slide of it earlier, it was, it was quite large and eccentric abstraction, it had been followed up as a wall and floor piece, as in a 1968 sketch of two pierced boards, one on the wall, one on the floor, with cords coming out the holes in the six by four grid connecting to its counterpart above or below, creating a, a wonderful kind of ordered chaos. Most tantalizing are two apparently unex unexecuted pieces that would have been substantial additions to Hesse's oeuvre. Visualize with me these. In one of the drawings dated 1967, a long length of hose-like plastic, flat plastic tubing was supposed to be filled with sand sealed at both ends and, quote, positioned whatever way it may be, is what she wrote. 
Despite this straightforward des description, the drawing allows one to physically sense the affect of this heavy, floppy, sort of flatworm writhing across a flat surface. The other one is a work titled, or just listed, Second. It was to start out as horizontal, rectangular boxes constructed of screening, which would then bend into non-shapes, what she called non-shapes, and connected in some way tentatively or permanently with wires through the screens, then coated with fiberglass. Though these two pieces would have looked very different, each one would have offered further investigations of the properties of relatively flexible materials empowered by the artist to sort of create themselves. Other drawings offer images we have to imagine into existence ourselves using what we know of her work. And this, of course, is what was done by her innumerable followers, imitators, extenders. The one on the left is by Ida Horowitz, better known now as Ida Applebrug from 1970. And the one on the right is by Mimi Smith, much later, but uh, called Covering for an Environmental Catastrophe. And this, of course, uh, Hesse's influence is such that we have in a curious way, seen many of her unexecuted projects made physical by other hands, other minds. So many young women artists in particular almost seem to have channeled Eva's desires for all the work she never got to make. Sad, but at the same time, it is an artist's dream to live on after death through one's own and others' work. 35 years after her death, the influence of Eva Hesse's emotional content in a minimal or formal receptacle remains visible in the works of women who weren't even born in 1970. Uh, both of these were born in 1970. The one on the left is, is by Hesse. It's Ought on the wall and Augment on the floor. And the one on the right is by Michelle Stewart, who is around Eva's age from 1976. This is Sayreville, and it's made by rubbed dirt from a specific site in Sayreville, New Jersey. So it's a, it's a very different concept, but obviously some visual resemblances. So 35 years after her death, Oh, yeah, I said that. <laughs> so, so why is this that 35 years later there's still so much Hesse-like work? There's something viscerally female in her sculpture, something women all over the world recognized immediately. There was nothing biologically specific, though comparisons to breasts were sometimes made when she used semispheres and so forth. Comparisons I ridiculed at one point and years later acknowledged. But she managed to communicate both strength as well as vulnerability, anger as well as passion, in a way that a lot of other women recognized deep down. Here's to just some more. I, could, I went through my slides. I could have had hundreds of things that looked very influenced by Eva. Uh, the one on the left is a 1972 piece called Sinope uh, by Rachel Rosenthal. The one on the right is by Hannah Wilkie from 1972. In the early to mid-70s, all the well, now well-known feminist issues, formal and ideological, were new to us. All the art, incredibly honest and often raw, seemed fresh and outrageous. Even the simplest things about women's experience hadn't been said aloud before, displayed in public before. Feminine materials like fabrics and ruffles and the color pink, orgasm, menstruation, childbirth, menopause, all took on new and rebellious significance as did central imagery and explicitly sexual imagery from a female viewpoint. By this time, Hesse had become a kind of deity for feminists. The form she had brought up from her deepest self offered new vehicles for new ideas. The one on the left is by Carolee Schneemann. The one on the right is a rape piece by Anna Mendieta. So with this reclamation of our visceral identities, there was and still is an emphasis on the gendered body. Carolee Schneemann performing nude, on a trapeze, Anna Mendieta performing an unnameable, un, unnameable, yeah, unannounced, sorry, rape piece in Iowa. Linda Benglis flaunting a double dildo, Suzanne Lacey playing with animal guts, Judy Chicago's red flag, a Tampax extraction, an Australian poster of Wonder Woman hurling at bloody Tampax at the viewer like a Molotov cocktail. If early claims were made, made for so-called essentialism and biological superiority have since fallen to the sharp knives of critical theory, the obsessive repetitive aspect of women's art and the focus on sexuality were voluntarily constructed from social and emotional experience and have remained in the feminist canon. Uh, the one on the left is by Amy Hamuda, Rope Pond, and the one on the right by Donna Byers. These are both from the 70s. 
As Elizabeth Hess pointed out, when conservative art writers argued that nothing happened in the pluralist 70s, they meant nothing happened except feminist art. <laughs> One reason it hasn't received its art historical due is that feminist art, like conceptual art, was based not on style but on content. It was hard to pin down and was a moving target. It was never an art movement per se, with all the implied similarities in style and aesthetic breakthroughs, critical triumphs, and post-coital exhaustion. It was art made as part of a larger social movement based on the struggle for across-the-board equality that we have yet to see, that we're yet to see fulfilled. Uh, these are both by Rona Pondick, Mound from 1990, and Pillow Book from 1997. In the 90s, young feminist artists trying to toss off the blanket of deconstructivist jargon and revitalize the imagery of the 70s feminist art looked back to work by Hesse, Bourgeois, Spiro, and many others. A 1994 exhibition at the Aldrich Museum brought together the Daughters of Eva Hesse, which was the original title, replaced by In the Lineage of Eva Hesse because the artist wanted no mothers, <laughs> or no more mothers. The catalog included a discussion between the artists and the curators. Rona Pondick said, we wouldn't exist without Eva Hesse, and admired her chutzpah. She figured out a way, I don't know whether it was conscious or not, to work within the minimalist language, and then there's the subject matter, which is the antithesis of minimalism. So she's attacking it while she is embraced by it, end of her quote. Peter Coyne, who did the piece on the left in 1987, uh, said she fell in love with the humanness and vulnerability of Eva's work. Lisa Hoke mentioned her use of everyday materials. Maureen Connor mentioned the use of materials that may be repulsive, transforming them and revealing their beauty. And Kiki Smith, whose piece is on the right, perhaps Hesse's true air apparent in the way she's given real and ephemeral bodies to the psychological complexities of Hesse's work, pointed out the way light passed through latex and noticed that she herself had chosen sometimes fragile materials to speak to the qualities of life. Uh, the one on the le left is right after, uh, which was right after Hesse's major brain operation from 1969 to 70. And the one on the, the right is Sans, S-A-N-S, uh, number two from 68. In a 1979 museum catalog, Rosalind Krauss traced many of Hesse's major works back to various male artists, including Judd, Andre, Kelly, Pollock, Flavin, John, Samaras, and others most of whom Eva would have acknowledged. And Krauss asked, how is an herb so visibly built on the armature of a predominantly minimalist discourse to be simply termed original? To make a long story short, she found that, quote, the most powerful and continuous element of Hesse's work came from the way it makes the edge more effective and imperious by materializing it. In this way, the edge that is displayed by Hesse is not focused on the boundaries within a painting or sculpture, but rather on the boundary that lies between the institutions of painting and sculpture. In the language of anamorphosis, we could say we are positioned at the edge from which the meaning of death is understood literally as the condition of the world disappearing from view, the condition in which form and matter are given the real possibility of eclipsing one another, and within which one can experience the pity and terror of that eclipse." End of quote. I think that's beautifully said, but not for me a compelling thesis. It's even something of a dead horse, given the fact that by that time volumes had been written on the boundaries and lack thereof between painting and sculpture, beginning in the later 60s with Barbara Rose's ABC art, My Third Stream art, Kiniston McShine's Primary Structures show, and so forth. The one on the left is Hesse's last piece. <laughs> The, the sort of bandaged quality is obviously kind of, obviously things are read into that. And the one on the right is accession again, but the inside of it, the sort of prickly inside of it. I would attribute Hesse's edge much more to individual creative courage fueled by traumatic lived experience and the shadow of death that did hover over, hover over her for the last two years of her art making. A unique life led to a unique art. But also crucial was the level of risk that was in the air at the time. The late 1960s were a time of great excitement, innovation, rebellion, and communal support, and a truly avant-garde climate of pushing past the barriers of the already seen. Lewitt's encouragement to be herself bore amazing fruit. 
When Eva began to expand the minimalist canon of repetition beyond serial logic into absurdity, one of her favorite words, she found herself in her work. She wrote, I want to be surprised, to find something new. I want to extend my art, perhaps, into something that doesn't exist yet. This is, of course, the goal, but not the achievement of virtually every contemporary artist. Hesse did find something new. In retrospect, it seems odd that certain shapes and forms weren't yet common in art, and certainly not in modernist sculpture, where one would expect to find virtually everything under the sun. But dripping, drooping, loosely hanging, hair-like, knobby 3D forms were unfamiliar until Hesse made them visible. The 40 years since her death have made it clear that these forms belong to the world, and now they're everywhere. Thanks, and I'd love to have some discussion. So we have two microphones, one either side, and we'd love you to use them for the questions for a variety of reasons. One, so everybody can hear, and two, because we are going to podcast this talk, and it's very difficult when you, you've got a, a great question, but you can only hear the answer. So, I'm coming back. <laughs> so first question up there, I'm on my way. Um, Where here. are you? Oh, okay. Hi. Hi. There was a, a conference at the Getty uh, two years ago uh, called The Object in Transition, and there was a presentation by a curator from the Guggenheim and a curator from SFMOMA uh, where they discussed expanded expansion in its current condition, hmm. and they had a, 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 a piece of it there. And, of course, it's this incredibly <laughs> touching and sad uh, moment because it's almost like a piece of a mummy. Uh, it, it has its own special case to keep it in place. Oh, no. I'm sure you know this. Oh. And I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on this. The two of the curators uh, worked with uh, Hesse's original um, assistant and reproduced or made a piece of expanded expansion. With Bill, Bill Barrett was, yes. you know. Yeah, and I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on that. They didn't present it as a remake. It didn't what? They didn't say that it was a remake of the work. Yeah. Uh, it was more to understand more what her process was, but I'm curious on your thoughts of that production. Yeah, I remember when that was happening and I couldn't, uh, it wasn't, there was something else not at the Getty, but there was a discussion going on and I was supposed to take part and didn't or couldn't or whatever. But I remember Saul LeWitt was part of this earlier one and um, Saul was all for remaking because of course this reflects his work, uh, and, but he was really was Eva's dearest friend and greatest supporter. And uh, he thought that they should be remade. Um, and you know, and that expanded expansion probably could have been remade. Some of the others, if you, I mean, you, I don't know how well you could see the the, right after piece, which was that, that one. Um, that is, has been shown in all kinds of different versions, and it's often very, this is in her studio, I think, and, and it's often just looks like hell, because they, they, they just can't resist making it neater. <laughs> and so, and a piece like that, uh, which you could easily reproduce, the, it's a latex-colored covered rope or whatever, and um, you could easily put that stuff together, but tossing it in the right way that she tossed it, it is probably just never going to be accessible in a funny way, unless some artist comes along who was very influenced by her and really could do it, I mean, physically, literally, take those materials and toss them in the right direction or whatever. So I don't know, I mean, I, it's, it does seem a pity that they're, they're not around, uh, it, and it... it uh, she she was she did have mixed feelings about it. I mean, she knew she couldn't stop using latex, and it may have helped kill her. We don't we've never really found that out uh, because she was really into it, and it was and she was very hands on and so forth. And and when she first got sick, nobody knew what it was. It took a long time to track this down. The, the neurological people thought it was uh, psychosomatic, and the, the psychologists thought it was physical, and it was a lot of back and forth. That, 
was lethal in the end, I think. But So I don't know. I mean, I went through the same thing with Ed Reinhardt's works, which, again, I didn't attend the conference because this, this kind of thing is not my forte. Um, but they, you know, Ed drained all of the, the oil out of his black paintings so they'd be absolutely matte, which means that any time a fingerprint got on them, that oil just whammo was there. And so there were fingerprints on some of his works, and it really did mess them up. I mean, for the opposite reason that Eva's things. And um, I don't, they finally found some way of restoring this and that, and his, his wife had something, his widow helped with that, and she had been an artist herself. And So I don't know what the final conclusion was on that, but I think they had to clean his things up. But Eva's, I don't know, I don't know where it's gone. I mean, I suppose it's really up to the people who own it. The, the museum or whatever, whether they want to see it just deteriorate forever, which is, you know, in, in the terms of those days would have been interesting. <laughs> I mean, it would have been okay. But now we have so few works of hers that it just seems kind of awful. Anyway. Anybody else? Watching that film in the museum today with both Eva and Saul talking was like, oh, <laughs> kind of heartrending. Uh, when you mentioned tonight about uh, her her journals or diaries, and I, re I remembered that you mentioned it in in the in the book. Where are you? I'm sorry. Here. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, it reminded me what I, I often wondered: it, are those journals are they, are they archived anywhere that people can have access to, or have Parts of them have been published, or, is, or do you own them? Or where, no, where no, uh, her sister owned them, and you know I don't know. It really has been a long time since I've worked with her. They're quoted. I mean, everybody who's written on her has pretty much seen the journals. I think I quoted them a lot in my book, and I'm sure that other authors since then have have. I mean, I can't remember whether they've quoted the same things or others, but they've been made accessible. To, I mean, Barry Rosen, who co-curated the show at here. Um, has I, th I think he he handles the estate and he knew her, and he was a good friend of Donald Drolls, who was also very close to Eva. So I'm I'm not sure if there was anything kept back that I didn't see. <laughs> you know, I mean she was very honest in these journals. They are they are poignant. But there there hasn't been anything published. I don't think the journals been. as a whole have been published, but there's a lot of bits and pieces of them have been. But I, I don't know who has them, whether the estate still owns them or whether they've been given to somebody. Okay. Um, I was um, intrigued by your discussion of the, the Bowery community that um, you, uh, you know, discuss as having a kind of defining impact on you and also on her work. Um, and I'm wondering about uh, her background, her German background specifically, if this is something that you talk to her about much as perhaps another defining factor. And uh, Well, actually, Hilton Kramer uh, at one point said that uh, I didn't discuss her Jewishness in the book and so forth. She wasn't not a religious Jew, but of course she was she was moved out at a very young age, out of taken out of Germany with her older sister. She find, they finally ended up in the States. Her mother committed suicide. Her father remarried somebody named Eva, who became Eva Hesse, which was a sort of bizarre moment in, in her life. I mean, just uh, so she she had a, a, a very you know fraught life, as I say. I mean, and but the the German she didn't she didn't remember Germany particularly. But then when she went back there with Tom, they got they had this kind of he mostly had this deal where he had a year there in this warehouse to work, and they both worked, and they both had shows and so forth. But uh, and I know she was, you know, going to Germany was a, an emotional thing for her. But I don't remember. There must be stuff in the diaries about that that I just didn't get into. It 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 just seemed too easy, I guess. And I and I was balancing on this edge of not doing too much pathos and uh, trying to pay more attention to the work and so forth, so I probably left quite a bit out. I mean, Hilton may have, may have been right. <laughs> so. Hi, 
Hi. Uh, you, you've mentioned many of the artists uh, of that time, the minimalists and, and, and uh, the other artists. Was Agnes Martin part of uh, No, of not at all. Agnes was a different generation and a different... Um, a totally different person. I didn't. I thought about bringing Agnes into this, and I knew her. And in fact, she even lived for a while in the village that I live in now. She lived in three different places in New Mexico. She built a house, a totally in a very isolated place of her. She built her own house. Then she came to Galisteo, where I live, and and um, one of the things she did is she had a trailer that she worked in, and she covered it with adobe. And I got, I have, and then when the next person bought it, they did not want an adobe-covered trailer. And, uh, and so I got some of the adobe bricks. So in my backyard, there's a little low wall of adobe bricks that Agnes made for her trailer. But anyway, but I, I knew her in New York, and, and she was just such an extraordinary person and, and really hard. I mean, I find that I can't write or talk about Agnes, and she does the best job doing by herself talking about her very peculiar views of life <laughs> and very and very unique um, and I always feel sort of silly just quoting her endlessly I mean she 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 was coming from a place that I'm not coming from and it it didn't seem like the right thing to do to do Agnes in, in this and Betty Goodwin's work which I was very impressed by in the show I, I didn't know well enough to get into but it's a wonderful show that the three of them make a really interesting I mean, if you hear Agnes in the film, the 1975 film that's there, that's Agnes with a vengeance and so on. And she didn't, she was not a feminist. I mean, she didn't, couldn't have cared less about any of that stuff. So, so we were sort of not at odds, really, but just, she was a good friend of Harmony Hammond's who also lives in Galisteo. <laughs> uh, and and they, they talked and knew each other and talked about painting and stuff. But, but Agnes was, um, I mean, Robert Ryman's white work, you know, was was always being compared to Agnes, and it was just so completely different that I, I it was annoyed me because it's just com coming from a completely different. It didn't look like Agnes's work, it, or, and hers doesn't look like his. And then Rauschenberg did white paintings, I and mean, this whole business of oh, white, it's it's been done. <laughs> you know, like Bob Smithson sort of felt like he owned mirrors for a long time. <laughs> But uh, yeah, she she was really she was in this Quentin Slip group, which was tended to be slightly older artists, and and then she moved to New Mexico around in the seventies, early seventies, around seventy, I think, and uh, and didn't exactly vanish because she had an extremely good dealer, but but she herself kind of wandered off into the wilderness. She was always fascinating to listen to. And and, the, and the, I love the work, but I just can't think of anything to say about it. <laughs> Hi. Um, I'm just kind of wondering, in the context of this show, which is sort of a retrospective on feminist art that wasn't really feminist at the time, um, I'm just sort of wondering what your thoughts are on feminist art in the contemporary art world right now that may or may not be feminist still? I don't know. I mean, you know, the whole business of who is and who isn't a feminist, it's, it's really a self-identification. I mean, if you don't think you're a feminist, people shouldn't call you a feminist, I guess. I mean, in, although in the early days we insisted on calling everybody a feminist who didn't stand up and scream, no, I'm not. <laughs> you know, sort of. But, uh, but the, you know, this, I hate this idea of post-feminism because I, feminism was was partly about social change, or largely about social change, as well as art. And what, until the social change has happened, which it has not yet fully happened, it certainly things are entirely different and much better now than they were then. I mean, you younger women have no idea what it was like. I mean, women were just totally dissed and disrespected and so on. I always tell a story about the early feminism. In the early 70s, Mary Miss, who is a wonderful artist, and has since, to some extent, gotten her due, but she she couldn't she didn't have a dealer, and um, so I was talking to this male dealer, and I said, you know, you should really go to Mary Miss's studio because she's a wonderful artist. And so I went in there again a few weeks later. I said, you go to Mary's studio. He said, oh yes, it's it's just wonderful work. And I said, great. Are you going to show it? And he said, no, she's too beautiful. I might show it for the wrong reason. <laughs> so that kind of thing. I mean, and and far worse went on. I mean, when I talked about feminism, one of the questions I sometimes got from males in the audience is, why don't you wear a bra? I mean, like, this is a real intellectual question for a lecture. But, 
And, and they were just all kind. And I always, the men who stood up tended to be sculptors. <laughs> Sorry about that. Any, any sculptors in the audience? And it got to the point where I could say, are you a sculptor by any chance? <laughs> <You know? laughs> but anyway, the, the post-feminism, you know, it, it does depend on whether people want to call them. So I, I talked to, a, I gave a talk at MoMA a couple of years ago when they suddenly recognized feminism and had a symposium. And... Um, <laughs> And one of the things that I said was, it was that, you know, young women often come up and say, oh, thank you so much for doing everything. Now we don't have to do anything. And, and I talked to a bunch of young women, and, and one of them said, daughter of a close friend of mine that I'm very fond of, and she said, I said, would you call yourself a feminist? And she said, well, I'm, I'm, a, I, I'm a strong woman. I, I definitely would stand up for myself, and in that sense, I'm a feminist. And I said, no, that's not really a feminist. And she said, why not? And I said, because a feminist stands up for other women, <laughs> not just themselves. And that was, that's really something that, to some extent, has been lost, I think, of that point of feminism, which it really was. I mean, there was a, a great generosity. There's a lot of bitching and whining, too. I mean, we, we were not perfect. But, but um, there was a, a real generosity if when somebody began to make it, they would try to bring other women along with them into their gallery or into the show or have a critic come to their studio or something like that. And, and that was actually, in the art world in general, my part of it, the Bowery community or whatever, um, what was much more generous in those days than it is now. It's more dog-eat-dog. But, but I, I hope that the young women in this audience think of themselves as feminists on some level. And, and you're, you know, in, in the early days, we, we had to put it all in our art, and I don't think that's entirely necessary anymore. I mean, you know, if you feel like it, you should certainly do it. But... But uh, it, you, you shouldn't feel like you have to put your women's experience into your art. But I think it's always there on some level. Unless, of course, you've decided you are really going to kick it out and stomp it down and not have it in there. <laughs> and there's that going on, too. Thank you. I'll stand up so you can hear a little better. Um, you've obviously were privileged and have seen her diaries, so you know what she wrote about herself and her art. Um, how did she talk about her art to you or to her other friends and people in that community when she spoke about her own art to you? Well, it, it, actually, you can read the, the diaries and, and in the film in the museum, there's her talking quite a bit about her work. It's a little hard to understand. It's the most god-awful documentation but we just didn't do anything more. In those days, people didn't, there were, videotape was just for performance stuff at that point, and we didn't do that much. But she talked about it very much in terms of, you know, feelings and, and uh, wanting, the, the kind of quotes that I've used. I mean, she was very insecure, and Saul really tried to kind of get rid of that by telling her to, to focus on that and really have that, encourage that part of herself which wasn't cool and cool was big in the 60s as you remember I mean, so, so uh, but she she was always a little insecure and always anxious I mean she she had some neuroses that brought on by her life I mean so but then they went into the art which was always interesting I mean like this total zero thing I don't know I think she finally destroyed that piece she didn't like it and but but some of the some of the pieces had that kind of you know very personal stuff behind them and some didn't but but it, you you should go to the film and listen to her talk. Hi, thanks for speaking tonight. Um, I just wanted to make as a lead up to my question, I want to make a quick clarification uh, for the. People were asking about her diaries. For a number of years ago, I used to work in a retail bookstore, and for a while we were selling this small gift book. It was about the size of a standard moleskin diary, and it was a facsimile of Eva Hess's diary. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, I, I was, missed that completely. Yeah, but I don't know if it was her estate that produced it or if a publisher... A, well, it would have been in her estate that, that released it, and I've just okay. forgotten that it existed. Yeah. And I didn't do any research after the book. I mean, I really sort of felt like poured myself into that book and, and that I didn't, that other people would have more to say than, than I did. But that's interesting. That's, yeah. Uh, but it, again, I wouldn't necessarily consider it to be this historical document. It was more, I feel, marketed as a gift item, like yeah. something huh. where perhaps a fan of the artist could purchase it and have the sense of intimacy in reading her 
it was like everything was written in ballpoint pen and it was copied out as as a facsimile. Oh, um, or was it, it wasn't the, the pages of the diary itself? It was, it was, no, it was a facsimile. It was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but given that, knowing that there is obviously this interest in reading her innermost thoughts and what she was doing as she was making the work, um, do you feel that that is a benefit or advantageous to when we're evaluating or looking objectively at the work itself to having that background knowledge of Eva Hess's process? Well, like yeah, I have to say that I, you know, I really loved having that information. Um, it, you know, then you, then I think of myself, and I think, you know, I really should go through stuff and get rid of some of these things. <laughs> I mean, you know, so, so it's it, it is hard to tell. And you know, it's funny because I don't really remember whether I was shown all of the diaries or not. So it, it is possible that her sister kept some stuff out, but it was all pretty pretty honest anyway. No, I, I've I've always felt that I'd like to know as much as possible about what the artist is thinking and and feeling and so on and. And um, there is a school of art criticism or whatever that feels that you shouldn't know anything about what the artist is feeling and thinking, and that all you do is look at the work, and it's you and the work, and that's all there is to it. But I, I, I've always totally disagreed with that. I think the more layers that you can delve into about somebody's work, the better. And the same with photographs. I mean, I, I write a lot about photography, and, and I... I like photography to have captions. I like to know where this is, not just a tree. It's a tree where, and so forth. Um, so I'm, I tend to definitely veer in that direction. Since we're so um, privileged to have you here with us, I'm wondering, and you knew Eva Hess so well, if you could... Pick one of the works that you've shown us tonight of hers and reveal for us a way in which an intimate knowledge of her biography and her personal life and so on sort of inextricably informs your reading of that piece, but then also how that reading, uh, how you could also, how you can also see that you could read that piece without any such knowledge. In other words, I, other I, I, can't, I can't just do that out of the air. I, I'd yeah. have to think about it. I, I write much better than I talk. That's yeah. why I read these things. But but uh, the book does that. I mean, I yes. go, I, I have, the book is oddly organized uh, so that it, the text flows through and every now and then there are four or five pages of very long captions, like short essays on the work. And yeah. and that has pretty much what you're asking for. Yeah, and just I think the book is talking, still for sale. This image has been behind you while you've been having this whole discussion about personal knowledge of her and how it can inform yeah. but you have to limit the way in which you let it inform the work and I've just found myself yeah. I mean hang up is the one I always that I mm -hmm. like best but I like that for odd reasons of my own I mean I'm not really sure that's that's not hang up it's the one with the loop coming out of it and uh no I'd have to really I'd have to write that I don't think I can like talk about that <laughs> so, thanks sorry about it Any more questions? This is your last chance. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't have to be about Eva. I mean, it, it's. Uh, I was originally going to was hoping to to write about Lucy. Gerald, are you here? What's her last name? Tor say it again. Tessior. Tessior. Yeah, Tessior. Who was an Inuit woman artist whose work I'd seen years ago in in, in Indigena. Show that Gerald McMaster had curated, and um, I thought that would be would get me going on something different about Eva rather than just reminiscing because I had I, I haven't really like I said thought about it that much, and I thought looking at Lucy the other Lucy's work, and they have nothing to do with each other. I mean, there's no particular comparison or anything, but just looking at both of them in parallel sort of would have been interesting. But as it turned out, it, that show is coming later. So. That show is coming later, but you can always come back. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to thank you because that was absolutely superb and, and has given me certainly great insights into Ava Hess's work. And as I grew up in London in the 70s, 
I was very much part of the feminist movement, so you've reminded me of a lot of the passion. And I've, you know, where's it gone? I've got to get it back. So, and I'm definitely a feminist and always have been. So, um, I'd like to. I, I didn't mention at the beginning the two curators who've brought this at work series: Michelle Jakes and Georgiana Yiliaric. And we have. <laughs> So thank you, because we're really, really enjoying these three shows of these three wonderful women. We have Richard Tuttle coming on October 13th, who was a friend of Agnes Martin, and I think they influenced one another's work. And he's going to be in conversation with Georgiana and Michelle. So that's October 13th uh, in Bailey Court. And then we have Kitty Scott, who's the visual arts director at Banff, is going to come and talk about Betty Goodwin on November 17th. So that's the three lectures going with that. We also have uh, Philippe de Montebello, who was director of the Met in New York for 30 years, and he's going to come and talk on uh, October the 27th. So thank you very, very much. It was a real pleasure to have you here this evening. And this talk will be podcast, as I mentioned, because I know I personally need to listen to it again. And I think she was, you were worried about it, you know, with no images. But I think it, it will actually... Oh, but those slides were fabulous, and you've reminded me also how much I really love the qualities of slides. So, And it's a very interesting audience you've been talking to, by the way. Hope you have a chance to say hello to some of them. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this Art Guy of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.